right, let's uh, begin with the word of prayer. Well, Father, I thank you for this day once again, this day that you have given us to be a time of worship and fellowship and for giving us this uh, short while this morning before we go into worship to consider more about uh, who you are and in particular um, the, uh, the Trinity, the um, persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the personal properties. Father, I pray that in this time you would uh, preserve me from error, keep me from going beyond what Scripture says and reveals to us, um, and let this be an educational and um, be a time of uh, stimulating our minds, but also our hearts toward worship as we consider the uh, magnificence of who you are. Um, Father, keep us all focused and attentive today uh, and allow us to do everything in a way that is honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we will be continuing our look at the doctrine of the Trinity as we began last week. But before we do that, I do want to have a little word about God's providence. Um, about a week or two ago, I went out to my mailbox and there was a package in it and uh, opened it up. I saw that it was from Broken Wharf and I didn't remember uh, ordering anything from them recently. Uh, and when I opened it, I saw a, a book with the title Vindicie Veritatis, which is Latin for a vindication of the truth. And I went back in my emails and I found that I had, in fact, pre-ordered this book back at the beginning of April um, it was not out yet at the time, but they were taking pre-orders then. And, uh, it's a new edition of a very long out of print book that was written by Nehemiah Cox. That's a name a lot of you have probably heard before. And it was published in 1677, the same year that our confession of faith was first drawn up. And Cox, as well as his co, uh, co-elder at the Petty France Church in London, William Collins are generally believed to have been the the main editors of our confession. Now, this book Vindicie Veritatis was written by Cox um, in response to the publication of some works by a man named Thomas Collier, including his own confession of faith. Uh, Collier had previously, many years earlier, actually, been sent from London by the particular Baptists to lead church planting efforts in the more rural parts of Western England. But over the years, he had begun teaching and publishing heresy, including denial of the Trinity. Uh, The Baptist leaders in London felt like they needed to do something about this, and uh, both to warn the Western churches against Collier's heresy, but also to publicly disassociate themselves from his teachings uh, in the eyes of England's religious authorities, because at that time, uh, the authorities in England had not yet become officially tolerant of nonconforming religious groups like the Baptists, and if they were to see a leading Baptist church planner uh, publishing anti-Trinitarian heresy, they likely would have seen that as a justification for more uh, severe persecution of the Baptist movement as a whole. Um, The reason I bring this up is, one, to highlight the fact that a strong and clear affirmation of the Trinity is an important part of our heritage as particular Baptists, 
but also to highlight the uh, providence of God and having the very piece of period Baptist literature dealing with this topic arrive somewhat unexpectedly in my mailbox right at the point when I'm preparing to teach on the subject. Um, and I also point out that if you look at the London Baptist Confession next to the Westminster Confession on the uh, doctrine of the Trinity as well as on the person of Christ, uh, you'll notice that the Baptists actually beefed up those sections in response to Collier's heresies to the point that even a lot of Presbyterians today will admit that the London Baptist Confession is stronger on these doctrines and more clear than the Westminster Confession. Um, so I just, I just thought it would be good to, to bring that up since uh, it was it was really good that that showed up. I, I, I didn't really end up using that a lot for this lesson, but uh, next week, uh, which should be probably the final uh, section of this series on the Trinity, we will look at some heretical views. And so we'll talk about some of the things that, that Collier got wrong and, and why those things were wrong. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll get on to our topic for today. And as always, let's begin with our catechism questions. So uh, I hope you remember them. If, if not, if you want to look them up real quick, I'll give you a moment to do that. All right. So question seven, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question eight, are there more gods than one? There is but one, only the living and true God. And question nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. And I, I did mention last week that I'd hope to have some handouts for you all with scripture references for the doctrine of the Trinity. Unfortunately, I didn't end up leaving myself enough time in the past week to work those up. Uh, especially since I was in Starkville Friday evening and yesterday for a wedding. Uh, I might be able to do it uh, next week, but if not, I'll come up with it later and send out a, a link in group me to a, like a Google Docs file or something uh, later. But anyway, today the aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity that I want to focus on is the personal properties of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which is described by the relationship of the three persons to each other. Now, our catechism, because it follows the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, does not cover this specifically. However, the Westminster Larger Catechism does. And question 10 of the Larger Catechism asks, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? And the answer it gives is, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. In other words, what makes the Father the Father is that he begets or fathers the Son. What makes the Son the Son is that he is eternally begotten of the Father. And what makes the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is that he eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, now, that the begetting of the Son and the procession of the Spirit are from all eternity is 
necessarily the case by virtue of the fact that they are divine persons, as we've been over already. Divinity, by definition, is eternal. Um, All the persons of the Trinity are fully divine, and thus all the attributes of God are fully comprehended in each of them. Um, And this is reinforced if you go to question 11 in the larger catechism, which asks, How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? And the answer it gives is, The Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Now that's what we looked at last week, seeing all of these scriptural examples of the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit by looking at scripture passages that describe those persons of the Trinity with attributes that are only proper to God as well as the fact that worship is directed at them uh, and so forth. So concerning the eternal begottenness of the Son, which is also called the eternal generation of the Son, we'll turn to a passage of Scripture that we spent a bit of time on last week, which is Hebrews 1. Um, The author is, in that passage, exalting Christ the Son. And so would someone like to read verses 5 to 12 again of Hebrews 1? All right. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, He says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes the angels winds and his ministers a fire of flame. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of his brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. Your ears will have no end. So, thank you. Um, So we start here in verse 5, and here the author affirms the begetting of the Son by the Father. It says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now the word today does not indicate a specific point in time when the Son became begotten of God at that certain point. Uh, or when the begotten Son of God came into existence. Rather, what it indicates is the eternity of the begetting, or we might say it is always today in this sense. Um, It's not like us who were begotten of our earthly fathers at a specific point in time. Um, Now, I think there is some sense in which the today could be pointing to the resurrection Uh, Because it was on that day when the formerly humiliated Christ was made manifest as the Son of God in glory. Uh, Colossians 1.18 speaks of that, calling him the firstborn of the dead. And uh, Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. However... The father's act of begetting the son did not have a beginning, and it will have no end. 
Um, and the same is true of the Father and Son sending forth or spiration of the Spirit. And this is made clear by what follows in verses 8 to 12. Uh, but first, verse 6 says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. As we mentioned last week, that the angels of God are to worship the Son further proves his deity. But if we go to verse 8, it says, quoting Psalm 45, 6, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then verse 10, quoting Psalm 102.25, says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So then it's said here that the Son is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Thus, um, it wouldn't make sense to say that he was begotten at a certain point of point in time. He must be the eternal God. And so if, he was, if he's begotten, then his begottenness must be from all eternity. Um, now, today we are going to be repeating a lot of the same scriptures from uh, last week, but this is unavoidable given that the divinity of the Son and the Sonship of the Son are really indistinguishable from each other. Um, and so we have to go back to uh, John seventeen five again. This speaks well to the uh, big, eternal begottenness of the Son. Jesus there prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so the Son uh, was with the Father in glory even before the world existed and even before time existed. Again, that reinforces the point that he is the eternally begotten Son. Now, the nature of the uh, act of begetting or generating the Son by the Father is a mystery that Scripture doesn't explain in detail. And so we do need to be careful not to move beyond what Scripture reveals on this point and and get into speculation. But just from what it means for a father to beget a son, uh, we do know that it involves the communication of essence. We are humans, in other words, because we are the children of human parents. Uh, Augustine called the Father the fountainhead of deity. And what he meant by that was that the Father communicates the divine essence to the Son. However, the Son equally and indivisibly shares in that divine essence. So that's where the um, analogy between the generation of the Son by God the Father and the generation of humans by our earthly fathers breaks down. Um, we still differ from our earthly fathers in many ways. If you were to compare me to my dad, you would be able to very quickly spot a lot of differences. Uh, However, the persons of the Trinity fully uh, share in all attributes of God equally and perfectly. And so the only way that they can be distinguished is by these properties of relation, that the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. Um, Anyone have any questions on that or Yes, Richard. Would you say that you have to have a communication of the essence to have personal properties? Um, and the reason why I ask right. this is because there are some that deny that, that the essence is communicated. So, I mean, that's uh, yeah, heavy philosophical stuff that is. Uh, Honestly, a lot of those discussions can very easily go beyond what Scripture reveals. But 
Um, I, I, I do think that that is it, it is implied in the title Father and Son and Spirit. The, yeah, the, those titles. The, the reason why I bring that up is because it's important to understand that there's a difference between communication of essence. We don't want to hear that that means um, communication in a way that we are the God, like, mm-hmm. like you're talking about. Um, we wouldn't say there's a begetting of the essence. Mm-hmm. So that would imply that there's some kind of new essence. Yeah. It's not the essence that's begotten, it's the person that's exactly. begotten. Right. So, just add my two cents on that. Thank you. Okay. I, I, yes, I hope that that okay. conversation doesn't confuse things at all. Um, yeah, and un- unfortunately, I'm, I'm trying to be somewhat high level in this, and so, uh, you know, as much as that's possible. Um, but there's a lot of, lot of uh, good reading that can be recommended to anyone who wants to consider these things further. Vindicia Veritatis uh, is a good example of, of that, probably. Um, also, Turin is really good. Um, but uh, yeah, anyone else before we move on? All right. So um, I do want to say some things at this point about the incarnation of the Son, uh, now, that is covered in question 25 of our catechism, and so someone else, or possibly me, I don't know, will be, uh, we'll be teaching on that probably in a year or two. Uh, and Richard did also teach on it in his last series. But um, there are, you know, it, it is important to say this in connection with uh, the divinity of the Son, to also talk about his humanity. Um, there are a number of passages in Scripture which describe the incarnation of the Son in different words. So 1 Timothy 3.16 says he was manifested in the flesh. Uh, Philippians 2.7, uh, which Prashant has, has preached on, uh, it says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.14 says that he partook of flesh and blood and then Verses 16 and 17 says that he helps the offspring of Abraham and that to do so he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he, in other words, became a son of Abraham in the incarnation. And then, of course, uh, John 1.14 says the word, which is the son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Another passage which is really helpful speaking to this doctrine of the incarnation is Acts 20.28 because it says, uh, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So it's saying that the blood of Christ is the blood of God himself. Um, That shows not only the incarnation of Christ, but also the perfect union of the divinity and humanity of Christ in the person of the Son. Um, And uh, so that whatever can be said of the human nature, or can be said of uh, the person of Christ as a man, can be attributed to God. Uh, We'll have more to say on that next week when we look at uh, some of the wrong ways of thinking about these things. 
Um, but for now, I will come back to uh, talking about the work of the Son and redemption uh, at the end of this lesson. But I do want to move on for the moment to the eternal procession or spiration is another word for it, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we distinguish between the begetting of the Son and the spiration of the Spirit, but exactly how they differ is something that we can't really explore uh, because they are beyond our comprehension. Uh, One distinction that we can note um, is that the Son is called the image of the Father. Uh, The Spirit is never given any description like that. Um, So uh, another thing is that the Son being begotten of the Father, is with the Father in the act of spirating the Spirit, while the Spirit does not beget or spirate any other person. Um, And I think, at least uh, according to Turretin, that demonstrates a distinction between the generation of the Son and the spiration of the Spirit, the fact that the Son is uh, involved in um, the spirating of the Spirit, whereas the Spirit, it, it terminates on him. Um, but again, I won't go further on that because it, it really is beyond our comprehension and scripture doesn't, uh, doesn't reveal that to us. Um, I will note at this point also that there is a controversy going back at least to the sixth century over whether it is proper to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son or from the father only. And this is part of what has divided the Eastern and Western churches. So even long before the Reformation, you had the split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and what would come to be called the Roman Catholic Church. And part of that disagreement was that the Eastern churches held that the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father and not from the Son, while the Western churches held that he proceeded from the Father and the Son. And this resulted in an edit to the Nicene Creed by the Western churches. Now, the original Nicene Creed was uh, much earlier and didn't say much about the Holy Spirit. It basically just said we believe in the Holy Spirit um, or in the Holy Ghost, depending on how you translate it. It was edited in 381 at the Council of Constantinople to add more uh, about the Spirit. It says, I believe in... The Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. But then sometime in the 6th century, the uh, Latin church added uh, in Latin the word filioque, which means and the Son. So it says instead of who proceeded from the Father, the Latin edition says who proceeded from the Father and the Son. And this became known as the filioque controversy. You'll hear people talking about that um, today, especially when dealing with uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, it continues to divide the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Protestants, by and large, have agreed with the filioque, affirming that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And question 10 of the Westminster Larger Catechism that I read earlier affirms this, uh, as well as chapter 2, paragraph 3 of the London Baptist Confession. It states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, the arguments against this that would be put forth by the Eastern Orthodox Church primarily come from 
uh, John 14, as well as Galatians 4, 6. So in John 14, this is where Jesus is talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And verse 26 says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so those talk about only the Father being the one who sends the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God there meaning the Father in distinction from the Son. Um, however, I do think that that uh, is not a strong reason for denying the uh the spirit proceeding from the son. We looked last week at Romans eight verse nine, and it says you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This, uh, this phrase spirit of Christ is used quite a few places in the new Testament. Uh, I saw at least one place where the phrase spirit of Jesus is used. Um, I don't, I didn't write down the reference, but, um, or spirit of his son. That's, that's also found in scripture. And so, um, while the work of sending the spirit is ascribed to the father, the fact that the spirit who is being sent is said to be the spirit of Christ, uh, proves that I think that the, uh, that Christ is one whom the spirit proceeds from because, Actually, by definition, the spirit of a person is that which proceeds from the person. Um, and so I think it would be improper to call him the spirit of Christ if the spirit did not proceed from uh, the son as well as from the father. Um, also, the sending of the spirit into the world, I think we need to understand that that is a distinct thing from the, the procession of the spirit um because well if you if you follow some of the trinitarian controversies that uh go on especially online uh or between different authors and so forth one thing you'll hear some latin phrases ad intra and ad extra ad intra refers it, it means uh to the inside ad extra means to the outside so ad intra refers to the relations of the persons of the Trinity and ad extra refers to the external works of God. The um, procession of the spirit would be one of those ad intra works and the sending of the spirit into the world to regenerate and indwell saints is ad extra. And we don't we need to not confuse those things. Um, am, I, am I being too uh, is, is this too confusing to a lot of people or is this am I explaining this? Okay. Okay, good. Um, I debated whether to bring up some of some of this, but um, it, yeah. So it's, I think, basically the the passages that the Eastern Orthodox churches would use to deny the filioque are really referring to those works of God in redemption, and not to the uh, interrelations of the persons of the Trinity. Um. So. 
Yeah, it, it is important to understand that the ad intra works of God uh, do logically precede and are the determining factor of the ad extra works, but it is important that we not confuse them with each other. Um, now, let's see. Okay, we're okay on time. Um, to finish out today, I do want to look at the work of redemption uh, and see how the persons of the Trinity, how their missions are distinguished when it comes to the the ad extra works, the work of redemption. Um, and so for consideration of that, let's go to Ephesians 1. Could someone read verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1? Thank you. Um, so this is where we'll get interactive for the next, you know, we got about 10 minutes left. Um, we'll just go through verse by verse and, and see how these, how this passage speaks to the, uh, the mission is the, the term for it of each person of the Trinity in the work of redemption. So we'll start um, with uh, verse three. What does, uh, what does this say about the, work of the Father. Or or what work is it yeah is attributed to him? Yeah, he blessed us. Um and what does it say about Christ? Yeah, we are blessed in Christ. It it comes through Him. Um, yeah, you can you can just uh, just quote the part. It's 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 easy. Um, verse four. Um, what does this say about the work of the Father? He chose us. Chose us. Yeah, and what does it say about uh, the Son? Chose us in Him, in Christ. Yeah. 
Um, so verse five, uh, what does that say about the father? Predestined. Who predestined us. Yeah. And, uh, and then about the son. Yeah. Adoption through Jesus Christ. Um, and just a, a point on, on that adoption through Jesus Christ, um, it, that it is proper that the son would be the one who would unite us as sons. So Romans eight twenty nine I have written down here. For those whom he foreknew, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Um, I didn't get into like the issue of whether it was specifically necessary that the son would be the one to become incarnate and to die on the cross uh, for our salvation. But I, I think that Romans eight twenty nine suggests that it is that, that the father could not have been incarnate or the spirit could not have been incarnate. It, it had to be the son who was to be incarnate and to accomplish that mission in the work of redemption. Um, so then uh, verse 6, uh, does that say anything about any of the persons of the Trinity? Yep. Yeah. But then at the end, it says, blessed us in the beloved, which again, in the beloved means in Christ. So you see this repetition of in Christ or in the beloved or in him all throughout here um, that it's because of his work in the incarnation um, and in his um, defeating death in his purchasing of our salvation um, and his resurrection that uh, that we have all of these blessings. Um, verse seven. Uh, let's see. I'm just I'll read some of these because we are getting low on time. Um, verse seven says, "In him we have redemption through his blood." Um, it is the blood of Christ, and as I mentioned, uh, Acts twenty twenty eight earlier, it is the blood of God. Uh, through which we have redemption. Um, verse 8 speaks of the Father. It says that he lavished these blessings on us in all wisdom and insight. Um, and then also in verse 8 that... Uh, sorry, I've written that uh, wrong. Okay, verse 9, sorry. It says... Uh, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Again, there's that in Christ, but it was the father, uh, the father's purpose. Um, go to verse nine. So it's about making known to us the mystery of his will. That's talking about the father's will, according to his, the father's purpose. Um, and verse 10 says that he united all things in Christ, in him. Um, also, verse 10 talks about it being the, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, again, speaks of predestination and working all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, we'll get to the decree of God starting uh, in a couple of weeks uh, when, uh, when it's Dirk's turn to teach. Um, 
And then starting in verse 11, it starts talking about our, our inheritance that we have obtained in Christ. And this is where, um, well, um, so verse 12 then, sorry, uh, <clears throat> says that this is through hope in Christ and verse 13 through belief in Christ. So we receive these, thing, these things, these blessings through hoping and believing in Christ. And then at verse 13, we get to uh, the Holy Spirit. And what does it say? Someone tell me, what does it say that the Holy Spirit did, uh, does in uh, verses 13 and 14? Seals. Yeah, seals. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then verse uh, 14, what does it say of him? Yeah, he's, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, and so this just shows the unassailable nature of our salvation because the Holy Spirit has guaranteed it. He has sealed it. Um, and that those of us who have been regenerated by him and are being uh, are indwelt by him, that we will receive this inheritance. It is a sure thing. Um, so just this, this passage here in Ephesians 1 shows in uh, great detail how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in accomplishing our redemption that was uh, predestined beforehand by the Father to be accomplished uh, in the Son, in Christ, and to be sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Um, so anyone else uh, want to just chime in there or asking questions on that. I think that's pretty clear to us. Um, I think some of y'all, probably a lot of y'all were here when Tiago taught through this uh, years ago. And uh, I would highly recommend going back and listening to his Ephesians series. I believe that it's uh, on sermon audio. But... um, all right, so we're coming up toward the end of our time. Uh, I hope that in this, as we go to uh, our worship service here in a few minutes, that kind of seeing the uh, personal properties of the persons of the Trinity and how they have worked together in accomplishing our salvation, our redemption, our um, reconciliation with God, even in spite of our own sinful behavior and our sinful nature, um, that this will stimulate us to worship and that uh, this will be a cause of of devotion and praise of God by us. Um, Let's see. Uh, Richard, would you close us in prayer? that we would